0: Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode Last Man Hanging. Eve, 1843, in Cranston, Rhode Island, wealthy Yankee mill owner Amasa Sprague was put upon as he walked home and was brutally murdered. Irish immigrant John Gordon was arrested, tried, and convicted in arguably a rather biased trial. On Valentine's Day, 1845, Gordon was executed by hanging. He became the last Rhode Islander to be put to death. Gordon maintained his innocence right to the end. His last words, I hope all good Christians pray for me. Paul F. Carancy, author of the book The Hanging and Redemption of John Gordon, joins me here on Murder Most Foul. Good day, Paul.
1: Thank you for having me on.
0: So let's, um, to fill in, again, a lot of people may not be familiar. The, uh, the victim, uh, victim's name was Amasa Sprague, a very well-to-do family in Rhode Island at the time. And you're going to give us the background on him and the um, the cultural state at the time, the uh, timeline. And um, that, you know, Rhode Island was a textile business uh, community. Uh, we have Slater Mill here. People should look that up. Uh, the uh, cradle of modern uh, manufacturing. So that we were a bustling, uh, along with the f- other places like Fall River, Massachusetts, a bustling uh, town. So uh, take us uh, take us back to that time. Okay,
1: well, uh, the first and most important thing to understand, I think, about the uh, mid-1800s, was that um, the Irish who were new immigrants to the country, at least in Rhode Island, were not even considered second class citizens. They weren't considered citizens at all. They were considered subhuman by most of the Yankee establishment. Um, there were a lot of grumblings in state government at the time. The Dorby Rebellion had just taken place. Um, the Constitution was outdated and uh, Dorr wanted to replace it to provide for better apportionment of the uh, House and Senate. It's interesting to note that back then, uh, the city of Providence had uh, about 250 or 60,000 residents. And there were small rural towns um, in South County that had maybe 1,200 residents, 1,300 residents. Yet they each had one vote in the Senate. So 20 small towns with a total population of 46,000 outvoted Providence with a population of 250,000, 20 to one in the General Assembly. Well, that served to ensure that the interests of the Yankee establishment was maintained and, and never challenged. Uh, so they didn't want to change the Constitution, but Doar did uh, that and other reasons. The um, There was a... Uh, uh, requirement for suffrage in those days that you had to own $200 worth of real estate. I think it might have been $198 worth of real estate. Um, and that was prohibitive for, you know, immigrants who just came over here and were making 60 cents a week in the mills run by the Yankees. So they um, they simply couldn't uh, get a foothold to get any voice in the government. Doerr wanted to change that. The Yankee establishment didn't want him to. The Providence Journal was run by Another mill owner family, um, Bowen Anthony, um, and you know they were firmly entrenched with the Yankee establishment, so you couldn't get a fair shake in the news. So um, there were there were problems, significant problems, and that's the conditions that the Gordons walked into when Nick Gordon first came here. Um, but he minded his business. He um, opened up first a small business in in. Uh, what the Yankees referred to as monkey town. It was Knightsville where a lot of the Irishmen uh, settled. And um, he uh, worked hard and he just focused on his business. He sold things like uh, tapes and needles and threads and things that you might need for the household uh, notions. Um, He was, uh, you know, he ran a pretty lucrative business. Didn't do a bad business at all for an immigrant that basically just established himself. But... um, he knew he could do a lot better if he could get himself a, a license to sell alcohol, especially among the Irish. They like to drink in the morning. They like to drink in the afternoon. They like to drink pretty much any time they could get one. So they, you know, that was uh, would have been pretty lucrative for, for Nick Gordon, and he knew it. And. Uh, he applied for a license and eventually learned his way around the uh, system enough to be able to get a license. He approached a member of the city council, and got him on his corner, and um, he got a license to sell alcohol by the bottle. And his business was really good. Uh, he knew still that if he could get a license to sell alcohol by the drink, which was a tavern license, he could do even better. And he pursued that goal, and he got that. About a year or so later, he was given that license, and he was rolling. Now he's just, you know, bringing in the cash. Um, all the Irishmen would stop in in the morning, have a quick drink. They weren't getting drunk, but they would have a, you know, little shot of something. Um, they would stop in at lunchtime, have a little shot of something, and after work they would stay there for a little while. And he was really making some good money. Well, that all came crashing down on him when a master sprig who ran the Sprague Mill right across the street from the, uh, across the side street from the store, (coughs) decided that he was just tired of his Irish employees getting drunk on his time. A lot of them were coming to work late. Even worse, some were coming to work drunk. Um, They would, you know, get more drunk as the day went on, after lunch or whatever. And productivity was suffering in the mill, uh, work injuries, work-related injuries were increasing, and that was hampering productivity. And a Brig had had enough of it. So he uh, decided it must be Nick Gordon that's providing the alcohol, since the store was right next to the uh, mill. Now, Nick Gordon swears that that wasn't the case. He acknowledged that he served a shot or you know, something like that to the employees, but certainly not enough to get them drunk. I mean, they could hold their liquor. They were used to drinking. It's not like they were you know, um, alcoholic virgins that were walking into the store. They, they could hold the liquor. And one shot that he was serving them in the morning um, wasn't going to get them drunk. He knew that. So he knew they were getting drunk somewhere else. And he did some of his own research. And he found out that uh, a gentleman by the name of Job Wilbur was—he—he uh, he ran a little store um, further down from the mill, I think, in the Dyer Avenue end of the mill, as opposed to the Cranston Street side. And um, he thought he was providing the alcohol, even illegally, because he didn't have a license to sell alcohol. But he suspected, you know, and, and I think he confirmed it with some of his friends, although he never said that because uh, he didn't want to, you know, turn anybody. Turn any of his friends in, so I think um, he, uh, he was satisfied that it was Joe Wilbur and it wasn't certainly wasn't him that was doing that. So uh, he tried to explain that to the council. They wouldn't hear of it. The Sprague was very powerful. The Sprague family was extraordinarily powerful. They had been here about one um, hundred some idea two hundred years. They came two years before Roger Williams uh, to Massachusetts. And then William, another William Sprague, generations back, moved to Rhode Island with his wife, had a family, and that's the family that grew William and Amasa Sprague and and that part of the Sprague clan. So um, they were entrenched, having been here a long, long time. They, over the time, not only uh, amassed this amazing wealth, but they amassed a political power that was second to none. At various times, a member or multi-members of the Sprague family served in the uh, the town council at the time in Cranston, the state legislature, as governor and United States senators. They just controlled politics. They also controlled the vote to make sure that they would never lose political power. And the way they did that was very interesting. They would deed to their Irish employees, the mill workers, a piece of land worth 200 dollars. Now they owned massive amounts of land, so they would have various lots that made up a, a full parcel of land they owned, and they would deed one lot to this Irishman and one lot to that Irishman, and a quick claim deed. At the same time that quick claim deed was signed, a second quick claim deed was signed granting that land back to a Sprague and the other sprigs, William. Um, So they would record the first deed, granting the land to the mill, uh, mill worker, let the mill worker go vote while they supervised his vote to ensure that he voted for whoever they wanted, and then immediately go file the quick claim deed, deeding the land back to them. It all happened within an hour, but they got all these votes. Now, they employed a lot of mill workers, and they owned a lot of mills, so that was enough to make sure that the family never lost political power. And they took full advantage of it. Um, so, in any case, they you know their political power was deep. It was entrenched. It was um, unforgiving in the sense that they would never lose it as long as that system continued. Those are some of the things Dawe was trying to reform. Um, well, in any case, uh, Nick Gordon tried to you know plead his case. Never had the shot. The, the decision was made before they ever entered the chambers, and they took away Gordon's liquor license, but it came at the least opportune time from Gordon's perspective. He had just sent, because he was doing so well, he had just sent for his entire family in Ireland. He sent for his brothers, Robert, John, uh, William, his um, nephew, William's uh, daughter, his niece rather, William's daughter, whose name I believe was Margaret, his sister, Margaret, and her mother, Ellen. And they all came over and met Nicholas uh, just a few weeks after he lost the liquor license, which cut his income dramatically, probably to less than half of what he was making at the time he sent for them. Now, back then, the immigration system wasn't like it is today, where you come over here and if you can't provide for yourself, you go on welfare. Back then, you had a family member that sponsored you. And if you couldn't provide for yourself, the family member provided for you. And if you couldn't, Back he went. Well, Nick was concerned. How was he going to do this now? His family was self-sufficient, with the exception of the mother. They could all work, they were all able to work. But um, you know, getting a job, finding a job that was suitable, was not always easy, especially with the influx of, of uh, immigrants that were coming over at the time, and he really didn't want them to have to go in the mills. He didn't do that himself because he, he dreaded Mills and he didn't want the family to do it. <clears throat> so in any case now he's got a problem and according to one or two witnesses he may have made a threatening remark toward a master sprig something to the effect that I'll have my revenge. Now that could be interpreted a number of ways not just um, you know meaning I'm going to uh, kill you back then it certainly could have meant I'm going to, you know, use my money to buy a piece of land to get the vote, I'm going to work with Thomas Dorr and the Dorr rights to establish reform, and I'm going to take away your political power. But to the witnesses that heard it after Massa was murdered, it was clearly a threat to kill him. So the families here now, uh, John Gordon was helping Nicholas in the store, William was doing some other work, uh, not in a mill. Margaret was the seamstress. The mother, you know, maintained the house and uh, did odd jobs that, you know, paid her a little bit of money here and there. She was uh, older than the others, so she didn't work at a regular job. And um, life was moving on. It was going pretty well. Uh, Nick wasn't making what he used to make, but he was still doing okay. He had already made enough money to buy a piece of land for $200 um, to build himself, a storefront with an apartment upstairs, and uh, when the family came, he wanted to expand that, to maybe provide a place for the family until they could get settled and go on their own. Um, So he was still doing okay at this point, even though it wasn't like it was. Then comes uh, roughly six months later, five or six months later, the day of uh, New Year's in uh, uh, 18 was he? was the year, 1842? 1842, 1842, um, New Year's Eve, 1842. It's master Sprague's wife's birthday. Her name is Fanny. They're having lunch or dinner, you know, lunch, I guess, together as a family. The kids are there. And um, he decides it's outrageously cold outside. He has a furnace in the mill that he's not sure because it was a Sunday and the mill wasn't operable. Um, He wasn't sure if that was staying lit, so he wanted to go over there and make sure that the mill wasn't freezing. He also had livestock just across the Picasset River in Johnston, and he wanted to go check on them. There was no barn, so they were outside. He wanted to make sure they weren't freezing to death. So he left. Now, there's a couple of side notes to, to the reason why he left. It's New Year's Eve, it's his wife Fanny's birthday, the family's enjoying dinner, and he just ups and leaves. Now, he would do this every Sunday, but you would think this day might be a little different. At least his wife Fanny hoped it would have been, and she was kind of disappointed that he left. So as he's on his way to the, to visit life, oh I should mention this. Right across the, um, the bridge, across the Percasset River, there was a small rooming house hotel, if you will. It was owned by the Fenners. And Mrs. Fenner was very friendly with the Master Sprague. So there were rumors at the time that they might have been having an affair. And that every Sunday when he went to, to go to the um, see the animals, he was seeing more than the animals. Now, um, I mention that because it throws into question uh, the motives of some other people at the time of the murder later on. So he went and he checked on the livestock. He just crossed the bridge into the Johnston side when from the corner of his eye, he notices a man walking toward him. And as he looks at the man, he realizes the man has a gun in his hand and is pointing it at a massacre. So he raises his hand kind of to deflect you know, whatever might be coming and the man fires a shot and it hits a sprague in the forearm and the musket ball runs down to the wrist and, and it exi- exits the body and a sprague is hurt. Now a master is a relatively big man. He's tall. He's stout. He's very strong. And, um, The man approaches him and tries to shoot him again, but I guess the gun doesn't go off. And he uses the gun to beat Amasa, and he hits him on the head several times. He he opens up several gashes in his head that are an inch, two inches long. And finally, Amasa is trying to make his way back to the Cranston side of the bridge, but can't quite make it there. The man uh, grabs hold of Amasa's face and just pummels his face with the Butt of the gun, and uh, a master goes down and, and obviously dies face down in the snow. Um, his the murder was so outrageously atrocious that. Brain matter actually spilled from his skull and was in the in the snow and on the uh, butt of the gun that was found later on. So um, uh, within a half hour or so, the body is discovered by one of Amasa's servants who was on his way home. Um, So the servant found the body, ran to get help. Doctor comes, medical examiner, whatnot. They examine the body. They take it away. Um, they didn't, they took, first took the body to the office, the medical examiner's office, to do what they considered an autopsy back in those days. It was basically an examination of the body. Then they took it back to the mansion, uh, and it lay there for, for showing. Uh, the the Sprague Mansion, that is, right across from the mill. So during this time, Nicholas Gordon, uh, William and Robert and John Gordon, are uh, in various places at various times of the day, but their whereabouts are pretty much accounted for. In the morning, they went to church. Now, church was different back then. It was an hour to an hour and a half long, Catholic Mass, um, and it took the balance of the morning. Afterwards, on a Sunday in particular, because you know, most of the Irish worked in mills and the mill hours were so long, they really didn't get a chance to do much during the week other than work and eat and sleep. So on Sundays they visited their friends and their family and they spent the day doing that. They walked from house to house to to say hello to each other. And that's what the Gordons did after mass. Uh, They had lunch with one friend. They um, went out to visit other friends along the way, the route home. Um, William, uh, the Gordons' mother, Ellen was uh, not feeling well Uh, So she didn't go to mass and they were going to visit her at various times of the day, not all together, but separately. So they were all different places, but their whereabouts could have been vouched for by somebody, that somebody was always an Irishman for the most part, because that's who they were with. And um, as the day went on and the body was discovered, people started to immediately think Nicholas Sprague. He threatened a massacre. So here he is dead, brutally beaten. Um, it, it must be Nicholas Gordon. Immediately, that was the, the thought that went through everybody's mind. Now, in some cases, some people may have legitimately thought that. Other cases, I think the light went off. And they said, hmm, if we can blame an Irishman for this, boy, this is a <laughs> Let's Let's see what we can get away with here. And I, and I think that was on the minds of others—the the ones that wanted to keep the Irishmen down, so they they wouldn't join up with the Dorrights and, you know, have this uh, governmental change and keep them subservient. Some of the people blamed Gordon; others joined in just so they could get the Irish. And um, immediately, the Providence Journal—of course, it was a master sprig. This wasn't, you know, uh, Harry Jones. This was one of the biggest figures of the day. And this was, the, the, the trial that would be coming up was probably um, as big as the Klaus von Bülow trial here in Rhode Island, or maybe the Lizzie Borden trial in Fort River. This was big. That same day, the speculation starts about the Gordons and the uh, people who were in charge of the investigation start trying to find a way to implicate the Gordons. I mean, clearly that way wasn't available to them immediately, other than the threat that Nicholas made. So they had to find what was the other, where were the others and and how did they pull this off? The very next day, Monday, sometime in the morning, uh, Nicholas and John, are both arrested at the store. Searchers go to the store. They they, um, search the entire store. They search the living quarters upstairs. um, And they don't find any guns. They don't find anything out of the ordinary. And they they leave with the two Gordons. William, who is... you know, the oldest next to Nicholas, understands that we got a problem. A couple of years ago, Nicholas bought two guns. He bought a rifle with a bayonet for hunting and he bought a handgun, probably for protection in the store, could have been for hunting too. And both those guns, he left in the store behind the counter. They were in clear view behind the counter. They weren't hidden. in a a safe or anything like that. They were just behind the counter. But the searchers, when they went in, didn't see them. So William went right after the arrest, and he knew exactly where they were, and he retrieved them. And he went upstairs into the residence, and he lifted a a rug that was on the the floor, and he lifted some loose floorboards that he knew were, were there, and he put the guns between the floor of the second floor and the ceiling of the first floor. And he put the floorboards back, and he put the carpet back.
0: Now, it it might have looked like he was uh, trying to hide a possible murder weapon, when in actuality, that really wasn't his uh, motive for uh, hiding the guns, was it?
1: It was illegal for Irishmen to own guns. They couldn't own guns. And if they did have a gun, and a murder was committed, It was pretty much assumed that that was the person that did it, the guy that owned the gun, even without much of an investigation. The the gun equated to guilt in the minds of the British and the Irish. So William knew it's not good if they find guns. He didn't know that the law was different here. So he he thought if they find the gun, that's it. These guys are convicted. So that's why he hit them. He did it uh, with a virtuous motive but um, it, it had an adverse effect later on. So within a day, those two were arrested. Later on that day or early the next day, the mother was arrested, Ellen. The brother, uh, Robert was arrested and the family dog was taken into custody. Now the Gordons had a dog. It was a good old mutt. According to the, the family and friends who knew the dog, didn't have a tooth in his head. It was an old, old dog. Uh, it had no teeth and it had to eat soft food. Um, wasn't vicious. Had never you know, bitten anybody that anyone was aware of, including other animals. Couldn't bite. Didn't have teeth. But the journal wrote up a description of the dog the next day in the paper. And it said that the dog was discovered when Officer Shaw, who had to break down the door. Found a dog with a collar of jagged metal. And the marks on Mr. Sprague were such that could have been made by a dog wearing such a collar. <laughs> I mean, they went out of their way to implicate the Gordons, you know, to outrageous extents.
0: So, uh, putting the pooch aside, we have um, authorities suspecting the brothers, Nicholas and William and John. And uh, how are they sort of, uh, you know, uh, apportioning blame here?
1: They started putting two and two together and say, hmm, maybe Nicholas wanted to kill a master, but maybe he hired his two brothers to do it. Why would they do it? Well, Nicholas was the breadwinner. He's the guy that brought them here. He was the oldest man of the family. Um, So everybody listens to him. And he might have told them how a master was responsible for ruining him financially. And they extracted their revenge either at his say-so or at his um, silent urging. Uh, so the next day, William, Ellen, uh, Robert, and a friend uh, by the name of John O'Brien, John O'Brien, I believe, Michael O'Brien, was also arrested. And... Um, they're all interrogated, but eventually they're all let go, with the exception of William, and that's because there were some witnesses that said William and John were together. We saw them at the around the murder scene. The others uh, had more, you know, better alibis, I guess. So they were all released. So now it comes down to the three: Nicholas, who was charged with being an accessory before the fact and William and John, who were charged with first-degree murder. And they go to trial. Before the trial, I should mention a little bit about the investigation. The investigation itself was so biased in the direction of implicating the Gordons that any evidence that would point somewhere other than at the Gordons was either thrown out completely or changed so that it wouldn't have an impact. So for example, there were tracks in the snow all around the murder scene, hundreds of tracks, because not only had hundreds of, you know, I don't know if hundreds, tens of people used that path in the hours that followed the murder, but there was also uh, searchers, medical personnel, Um, People that carry the body away, presumably family members or family friends, uh, all kinds of people that use that path. And they followed only the footsteps that went from the murder scene to Nick Gordon's door. Any footsteps that went a different way, they didn't even bother to follow. They also measured the footprints. And they went back to the store in the house and did a second search. This was a more thorough search, which probably would have revealed the guns had William not hidden them. Um, And it's when they took the dog and broke the door down and all that stuff. Um, They measured the boot that belonged to Nicholas and John Gordon. And they found the boot of John Gordon to match exactly the boot print left in the snow. <laughs> now, one, it's almost impossible to match the, the print in the snow, as I said. But secondly, that back then, it wasn't like you could go into Tom and buy 27 different style men's shoes in, you know, uh, 30 different sizes. You went in, there was one style boot, it came in two sizes, <laughs> big and small. So... To say that the boot print matched John Gordon's boot, it matched hundreds of men's boots. So that's not a piece of evidence. The fact that Prince went to the Gordon house, is also not evidence because everybody used that route to get to Johnston.
0: But I understand they did find other um, items of physical evidence uh, at the, the, the scene of the murder, didn't they?
1: But the next day they did find the rest of the gun. They found pieces of it the first day. The next day, they found the big pieces of it. And those pieces had um, some of the the hair and the blood and the the, um, dried brain matter from a master's head on it. So clearly, it was the murder weapon, or a murder weapon. Um, They found a coat that was discarded near the Dyer Pond. And the coat had red stuff on it that they just assumed was blood. Now, back then, there was no blood typing. There was no fingerprinting. It didn't exist yet. So if you saw something red and there was a murder, it was a pretty good assumption. It was probably blood if that was the clothing worn at the murder. But they didn't prove that it was the coat worn at the murder. It was just a discarded coat. It was old. It had a hole in it. It wasn't like it was new clothing that you know, someone may have uh, said, "I'm not. No way. I'm throwing that away unless it could implicate me in the murder." This was old, and it might have been discarded. It was also about twice as big as John Gordon. It literally wrapped around him. You know, maybe <laughs> once and a half times. Um, it, it clearly was not a coat that John Gordon would have owned for himself. But there were witnesses that said, "We've seen him in that coat once," and in fact john gordon did have a coat on that didn't belong to him on that day because he was on his way to church in the morning and his friend o'brien came by looking for nick and john said well nicholas already went to church but i'm going to church so i could use a ride o'brien had a carriage said, i could use a ride if you don't mind and he jumped in as he jumped in he split his pants right along the seam and it was a pretty big split i mean it it was exposed a lot, so the two laughed about it, and then O'Brien said, "Take my coat." And my O'Brien was a lot taller than John Gordon, so what was a probably mid-length coat on O'Brien was a full-length coat on Gordon, John Gordon, and it certainly covered the split in the pants. So he took it. They laughed about it all the way to church, and. He did have on someone else's coat that day. But O'Brien got the coat back at the end of the day because after mass and after he made a couple of visits and had lunch, went back home and changed his pants. He only had two pairs, a green pair and a gray pair. Put the gray pair on, and I would assume his mother was going to sew up the other pair for him. So um, now it comes time for... uh, Explanations: Why did you have this coat on? Why did you? Have... And when they found the coat at the scene, ah, that makes perfect sense. That's the coat that he borrowed, committed the murder, got rid of it because it had blood on it. Turns out that some witnesses said it wasn't even blood; it was red dye called matter, m-a-d-d-e-r, that they used in the mills. It might have looked like dried blood on the on the fabric. But, um, you know, it may not even have been blood, but they had no way of testing it back then. So, or if they did have a way, they certainly didn't use it. So um, that piece of evidence was put aside. Now, all this evidence, by the way, wasn't taken to the sheriff's office for safekeeping to make sure that there was no, you know, a chain of custody could be followed. It was taken to the mansion and left with the sprigs. <laughs> so they could, they could watch over it. Hmm. There was nothing conventional about the way this investigation went. In fact, uh, William Sprague, Amasa's brother, who was the U.S. Senator, the day after the murder resigned his Senate seat. Why? So he could lead the investigation into his brother's murder. There goes any semblance of impartiality. (laughs) Uh, And he did. The sheriff didn't lead the investigation. William Sprague led it. Now, there is a book written called Brotherly Love. It was written by uh, Tess Hoffman and her husband. Um, let me see what the name is. Um, uh, Tess and Charles Hoffman. They were both professors emeritus at the uh, very... One was at URI, one was at Rick. I believe they're both dead now. And they wrote this book, and in the book, they alleged that William Sprague murdered Amasa. Why? Well, the two argued over the direction the mill should take. Amasa loved politics, but he was consigned to running the mill because that was his father's wishes. William loved running the mill, but he was assigned to politics because that was his father's wishes. So William was in the Senate, really didn't want to be there, wanted to run the mill. A master was running the mill, really would ra- rather be, you know, have the political power. And the two fought over, William would constantly tell a master, I think we should do this or that. And a master would say, no, I'm running the mill. And um, the biggest argument was over whether or not they should expand. And a master was saying, I don't think we should. Times are good right now, but... That's not always going to be the case. And if we stretch ourselves too thin, when the tough times come, we may lose everything. William, don't worry about that. He, he just was consumed with power. And he said, uh, hard times will never reach us. Don't worry about it. And they argued over that. Well, as luck would have it, right after uh, Amasa was killed and William resigned, he did take over the mills. He did expand. Bad times did come. And they did lose everything. Uh, in fact, Zachariah Chafee presided over the bankruptcy, and he was an ancestor to John Chafee, the governor who pardoned John Gordon. Everything comes full circle in Rhode Island. Um, so the, uh, they gather all the evidence, it's all circumstantial, and the trial comes. And the first thing they do at trial is they try to put the gun, Nicholas's gun, in John and William's hands, assuming that it was Nicholas's gun that was the murder weapon, because they couldn't find Nicholas's gun. And everyone knew we had one. So that's not looking good. And um, they successfully pulled that off with help from a corrupt judge who, you know, steered the uh, trial by making decisions that probably would not be allowed in most trials. Um, they, the second piece of evidence was the coat uh, with the blood on it and a couple of witnesses said we saw John wearing that coat um, a third piece of evidence that they had was the footprints which as we know was useless uh, another piece of evidence they had is John had a, a bruise a cut on his face he says he had fallen on, I think on Christmas Day, he had fallen, or, or maybe earlier that day. But he had fallen, and that's how he got the bruise. And um, witnesses said that they saw him before the murder that, that morning, and he didn't have a bruise then. But now he has it. So it must have happened during a scuffle at the time of the murder. Um, again, circumstantial, uh, but they used that. They had the... Um, Footprints that led from the scene of the crime to the door. Again, circumstantial, thousands, hundreds of footprints, uh, but those are the only ones followed and measured. Um, and above all, they had witnesses that either were paid to perjure themselves or perjured themselves voluntarily because they thought they could ingratiate themselves with powerful people or because uh, they just didn't like the Gordons or didn't like Irishmen or whatever.
0: In your book, uh, The Hanging and Redemption of John Gordon, you recount testimony from specific witnesses whose testimony might be described as suspect. Um, there was the prostitute who testified that she had been in the Gordon's notion shop countless times, uh, I, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But And she saw the gun in question in plain sight even though the police missed it on their first search of the shop. Uh, Then there were the two men who were walking together on the day of the murder on a narrow path and John and William Gordon passed them twice in a couple of hours as they walked. Now the first time they say John had on a coat and the second time somewhat later he did not have on a coat. The implication that the coat at the murder scene was John's and he lost it there during the murder. But as you stated, the coat was way too large to belong to John. I guess the court didn't subscribe to the legal doctrine. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Um, not to mention the fact that the Gordons were seen uh, several places uh, by witnesses um, at at family how, you know get-togethers uh, at church uh, at a pub uh, by more than one witness, so they really couldn't have been on that path uh, with those two guys. And speaking of the court, Judge uh, Durfee gave fairly prejudicial instructions to the jury as it applies uh, to who they should believe, the Yankees or the Monkees.
1: Uh, he was a very corrupt judge and he, um, he instructed the jurors to put more emphasis and more weight on the testimony of the Yankees than that of the Irishmen. Now, in some respects, there was a reason for that, a, a legitimate reason, but in most respects there wasn't. The, the, re, the reason I say that is this. The Irishmen didn't have watches. They were poor. You know, they were basically making a living. They didn't have luxuries. So a lot of them didn't have carriages. They had horses. Some of them didn't even have horses. They walked everywhere. They didn't have pocket watches like the Yankees did, beautiful pieces of jewelry that were very expensive. So they told time by the position of the sun or by the church bells, particularly on a Sunday. The church bells would ring when mass started, and it would ring at one o'clock every day. So they knew the times roughly by the church bells. It was about you know thirty minutes after the church bells ring. Whereas the Yankees could say it was four fifteen <laughs> because they had a pocket watch. So for that, that's one of the legitimate reasons why you might say. Yes, put more emphasis on their testimony when you're trying to establish time, maybe, exact time. But that's it. But he didn't stop there. Just whatever they said, disregard it, pay attention to conflicting testimony of the Yankees. So now it comes time for the decision. John went first, and he was found guilty. And he looked at William and said, it is you, William, who have hung me. Nobody knew what he was saying, what he was talking about. Um, Carpenter, his attorney, had no clue. And he wanted to ask, but he didn't get a chance to ask because as soon as that happened, he was hauled away, got in handcuffs. Uh, and then it was William's turn, and William was found not guilty. Now, William knew what John meant, and those are the only two that did, because right after the, you know, Roy, Nick, Right after Nick and John were arrested, William hid the guns. William couldn't see John because the next day he was arrested. In fact, he was on his way to see John when they arrested him. So they never talked. They were held in different cells. And by order of Judge Durfee, the cells were to be at such a distance apart that they would never meet because he didn't want them to fabricate stories. So they never met in jail. Uh, William was released rather quickly, but he wasn't allowed to go visit John. So um, William never had the chance to tell John, by the way, I hid the guns. Presumably, he told him that the first time they met at trial in the courtroom. He probably whispered to him, by the way, I hid the guns. Um, So when he was convicted largely on the evidence that the gun found at the scene was assumed to be Nick's gun and therefore John had access to it, it was fairly clear to everyone that that's the piece of evidence that convicted John. And if William had not hidden the guns, there was no way that the gun found at the scene would have been assumed to be Nicholas's gun because they would have produced Nicholas's gun. So uh, that key piece of evidence probably was in large part responsible for the conviction of John. So William felt pretty guilty about that, but he was now afraid to say anything because he was just let off on a murder charge. Had he then come forward and said, but look, I hid the guns and here's the guns they would have arrested him on obstruction of justice, conspiracy, uh, tampering with evidence, a host of different crimes. Probably would have locked him up forever. So he was scared, and he didn't want to now admit that he had the guns. But when John was running out of options, when the general assembly uh, took a vote—no, um, before the general assembly's vote, when when he appealed and it was denied, when he was sentenced and the sentence was hanging. Um, when he couldn't get a new trial uh, and he was pretty much just on death row waiting to die. William knew he had no choice. His only chance to save John and friends convinced him that his only chance to save John was to let the authorities know he hit the guns and lead them to the guns. So they'll now know that Nick Gordon's gun wasn't the murder weapon. And he did. And when he did, they immediately moved for a new trial, and the court denied it. Joe uh, Durfee denied it. Uh, the second thing they did is they went to the governor and asked for a pardon. And the governor said, under the Constitution, I have no authority to pardon anyone after the term of the court in which they were sentenced had passed. He was sentenced in the spring term of the court, and this came out. It was the um, fall term of the court. So he couldn't pardon him. Then they asked the legislature for pardon. And the House voted. He lost by a fairly close vote. Then it went to the Senate, and they lost by a bigger margin in the Senate. Um, and now John was out of options. There was nothing left for him to do. It was about um, couple, you know maybe a couple of weeks before the execution. There was nothing else.
0: You also uh, mention a, a defense um, or a reason that you believe uh, that John was not the murderer, uh, and it sort of comes from uh, John's uh, Catholic faith.
1: William and the parish priest, Father Brady, were allowed to visit with him in his cell for about an hour, before, just before the execution. And they talked and prayed for the entire hour. And then, according to the you know, William and because and, uh, obviously uh, John couldn't say anything, but um, William and the, and the priest noted that they prayed and, and talked for the entire hour. And John was very positive, very upbeat. Um, then as he's walking to the courtyard, to the um, courtyard of the prison complex, they're walking out to the courtyard. And Nicholas Gordon is allowed to come and see him in the hallway to say goodbye and the two hug in a fairly long embrace according to the witnesses and john said to william no uh, i'm sorry to nicholas nicholas is his oldest brother and john says john is 29 years old he's about to be hanged for a crime he knows he didn't commit yet he looks at nicholas hugs him and says uh don't worry about me i'm fine And take heart, have courage. Those were his words. And I I just think that's amazing that a a young person, 29, who's about to be hanged can have that kind of fortitude. But I think only someone with the self-confidence of knowing he's innocent would have that kind of fortitude. Now, John and the whole Gordon clan were not saints. They were drunks, drunkards. I mean, they weren't... um, sociopathic drunks but you know they they could drink and they were known to get drunk and to be pretty rowdy when they got drunk um and more than more often than not after they were out partying or at the pub drinking uh people would find them on the floor because they were too drunk to get up um so they they could party and they weren't saints but they were catholic and they were Religious Catholics, I mean, they went to church every Sunday, they didn't miss. And like I say, it was a long event back then. And they had to walk a long distance, four or five miles to get to church. But they walked it every Sunday, there and back. And they, you know, stayed for the hour and a half. And they um, celebrated the religious holidays, Christmas, Easter. Uh, And they celebrated them hard as Catholics do. Those are the big holidays. Um, So you would think that a Catholic who's that faithful, when he's about to die, if he had committed murder and he's alone with his priest, would take the opportunity to confess it knowing that an unconfessed sin is going to drive you right to hell. That's the rules of Catholicism. So you would think he would confess it. Yet, when they got out to the scaffold and they put the noose on John's neck and they covered his eyes with a a handkerchief that his mother had given him. And the priest was now going to give him a final blessing before they pulled the lever. And Father Brady said to him, You're about to be sacrificed at the altar of bigotry and hatred. You're going to join the myriads of your countrymen who have died just like you, the hands of prejudice. Um, He was saying, and um, they left his body hanging there, even though he died instantly from a snapped neck. As a matter of fact, Thomas Dore was in a prison at the same time. He was in a cell at the same time. Now, back then, the prison cells weren't like they are today. They didn't have a nice silver toilet with a with a bunk bed and um, a sink and stuff. You know? What it had was a dirt floor, concrete walls, and one window way up high without glass on it, just bars. But it was way up high, so you could never get to it anyway. And it was to allow air in. In the winter, that air was pretty cold. <laughs> in the summer, that air was pretty hot. Um, the conditions in jail were enough if you were there for a while to kill people um, because you got very sick and you died. And that's exactly what happened to Nicholas. Even though he was found um, by, by uh, reason of a hung jury in two different trials, he was not convicted uh, and he was released finally from jail. He only lived for two years because he had gotten so sick in jail, he was there for almost two years, um, that he couldn't recover.
0: But the hanging of John Gordon is not the end of the story, is it?
1: The gun that Nicholas had wasn't the murder weapon. It became very clear to most people that John was innocent, that that wasn't his gun. And um, John was hanged in 1845 on Valentine's Day. In 1852, just seven years later, there were enough door rights now elected to the General Assembly that they were able to overturn the uh, law providing for the death penalty. Now, other states, I think one other state, had abolished the death penalty. But Rhode Island became the first state to abolish the death penalty for any crime, not just for murder. The other state abolished it only for murder. But in Rhode Island, it was a capital crime punishable by hanging to steal a horse back then. And there were other crimes that were punishable by death, not just murder. Rhode Island became the first state to abolish it for all reasons. Um, so it was seven years later. And it was because of the, not a majority, but a, a, a enough door rights in the assembly to be able to add to those Yankee votes that were sympathetic. Um, but it was because of the uh, Gordon case. There was no question about it. That was the case that was cited in the uh, debate on the issue.
0: And many years later, many, many decades later, John Gordon is officially pardoned and exonerated.
1: And that in itself is a fascinating story. A gentleman named Ken Dooley, um, an Irishman, Providence College grad, most of us involved in the Gordon case seem to have been either Irish or Providence College grads. Most of them are both. So there was Maddie Smith. There was uh, Dr. Connolly, Patrick Connolly. There was um, Scott Malloy. And there were several other legislators, Peter Martin, Irish BC guy. Uh, There was um, McCaffrey, Senator McCaffrey. And of course, Lincoln Chafee. And Ken Dooley had written a play called The Hanging of John Gordon, which is actually the play that prompted my book. My, my book was uh, published by the History Press. I had written a book before that published by the History Press called The, um, the uh, North Providence, uh, A People and Its History, or History and Its People. Uh, History and the People Who Shaped It. There we go. (laughs) And I can't remember the names of my own books. How's that? Um, So uh, the history press liked that book. And they they called me up and said, would you write a second book for us? I said, okay. And I pitched them a number of topics. And it was no, 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 no. They didn't like any of the topics I pitched. So I said, yeah, I'll write a book. We just got to come up with a suitable subject. So I'll let you know. Well, one day I had a meeting in Warwick that got canceled. It was a February night, cold and miserable, rainy, but like just above freezing, 33, 34, cold rain. And I'm driving home, but I didn't wanna take the highway because uh, of the conditions. I thought it was gonna be icy. So I, I went to back roads where I could drive slow and I ended up going by the Park Cinema in Cranston. And I see on the marquee, the, hanging tri- the murder trial of John Gordon. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting called my wife. I had nothing to do now. I was on my way home. And I asked if she wanted to go. And she said, nah, it's cold. I'll stay home. So I went by myself. And I, I knew that a master's break had been murdered. Didn't know the story. When I saw this play, which just focused on the trial itself, um, it was astounding to me that this stuff actually happened. And I, I left there Speechless and thinking to myself, the playwright—I didn't know kanduli at the time—the playwright had to take liberties with the play just to make it more interesting. This stuff couldn't have happened in real life. But you know, I'm a historian, so it prompted my my interest enough to check it out. At the time, I was also deputy secretary of state, and I found out that not only was everything in that play 100% accurate but it only touched the very small piece. It only touched the trial. It didn't touch the what preceded and post preceded the trial. So that's how this book came about. Um, but at the same time that I was writing it, because of that play, Peter Martin, who was a state representative from Newport, saw the play and also was fascinated and said, we got to do something to exonerate this poor guy. So he bumped into the governor in the hallway of the state house one day. And he said, do you have a few minutes? The governor said, sure. And he said, he told them very quickly the story of John Gordon. And he said, there's enough evidence to show that he's innocent. What do you think about pardoning him? And the governor said, I would, I would listen I'd entertain it. So Peter Martin introduced a bill of pardon for John Gordon in the House. And they had almost like a mock trial in committee room where people came in and said, here's all the evidence and here's why he's not guilty and and, then the other evidence and here's why he... And the House members were convinced in in the committee that there was enough there to execute the pardon. (laughs) Pardon the word execute. (laughs) And in 2011, I think it was, in the late 2011 or early 2012, John Gordon was pond, pardoned in a ceremony in the same room in which he was
0: convicted. In way of epilogue, um, Paul, if not John Gordon, then who did kill Amasa Sprague? You know,
1: in in the book, I refrained from writing anything about who it might be because it's total speculation. And I thought the Hoffmans did a fantastic job writing Brotherly Love. But when they started pointing the finger at William Sprague, with more circumstantial evidence, I thought they lost credibility. And I thought, I don't want to do that in my book because I don't want to take away from the fact of his innocence by speculating where people might say, oh, he's completely off his rocker. So I didn't do it. I'm happy to do it now because um, the biggest suspect along the way has always been a guy named Big Peter. Big Peter was a very heavy set Irishman. So I assume his first name was Peter and he just called him Big Peter. Big Pete. Big Pete was the nickname. Um, He worked in a master's mill. He was fired by a just days before the murder. And he disappeared the day after the murder, never to be heard from again. Some speculate he went back to Ireland. Some said he was in Pennsylvania, but he was never heard from again. The coat that was found at the scene certainly would have fit Big Peter because it wrapped around John, but it could have fit Big Peter. So he's always been the number one go-to guy. But let's look at some of the others that may have had motive. Fanny Sprague, his wife, she was clearly disappointed that he was getting up on her birthday to go to check on the stock, which really meant that he might have been going to see Mrs. Fennel. So she could have hired one of her servants, one of the mill workers who hated him, to go kill him. She knew exactly the route he'd be taking. He took it every, every Sunday. Um, so that's a possibility. How about Mrs. Fenner's husband? Maybe he found out that his wife was having an affair with a massa, And maybe he went after Amasa. Don't even know what the guy looked like. Was he big? Was he small? Was he, you know, have no clue. Nobody ever looked at him. How about those two guys that met, said they met William and John on the roadside? They clearly, if they say, and they met William and John on the road right near the murder scene, then clearly they're admitting they were right near the murder scene themselves. Did anybody ever look at them and say, what were you doing? (laughs) This supposed tea with your father. Um, So that's a possibility.
0: Well, Paul, this has been a fabulous, fantastic and interesting hour talking about uh, a very fascinating and interesting Uh, case from Rhode Island. Um, So uh, tell folks out there listening, um, I'm sure you can get the book on Amazon. Certainly, I got mine at my local Rhode Island library. But tell people how they can get in touch with you if they'd uh, like to investigate this uh, further.
1: Uh, Well, my um, email address, you can always email me at municipalheritage, uh, M-U-N-I-C-I-P-A-L heritage at gmail.com. My website is www.paulcorrenci.com.
0: And with that, Paul, I will thank you again once more for joining us today on Murder Most Foul. Uh, Stay safe and uh, have a great night. Thank you
1: for having me, uh, Jim. Really appreciate it.